Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Everybody's passion used to be motion pictures, but not so much anymore. It's the history of motion pictures that's intriguing. Think you know everything about that history? Think again. My guest today is Andrew A. Arish, who is author of two books. One is Colonel William N. Selig, the man who invented Hollywood, and the other just out is Vitagraph, America's first great motion picture studio, published by University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. What was your passion in terms of film history? I know you have a background over at Chapman University in Southern California, but how did you first develop that interest in motion pictures? You know, I think like a lot of us, I tended to watch everything that came on TV as a kid, and I also had the advantage of spending the uh, a good chunk of my childhood in New York. So there were a lot of revival theaters to see old movies. Some of those movies were silent movies, and I had just a, a wide assortment of films. Fell in love with all of it. You know, talking pictures are more accessible through TV and revival theaters growing up in that era. But I got the opportunity to go to Museum of Modern Art screenings of silent films. And I, when I was about 18 or 19, I was in film school at NYU. And I happened to run into Lillian Gish one day. And I got to spend about a half an hour with her, just me and her asking her questions, and she kept stopping me and said, I'm much more interested in learning about you. <laughs> and I said, no, I have so many questions, and she was so gracious. And just for our audience, some of whom may not know Lillian Gish, there are people that don't because we're going, we're going back into history. Tell us who she is. Lillian Gish was on the short list of the two or three greatest silent film actresses. She started with D.W. Griffith long after Griffith had his day she went on to excel not only in movies into the early 1980s, but she uh, it, she lived a long time, but also on the stage as well. She was just one of the great actresses of the 20th century. And she was interested in you. So where do you take it from there? Oh, my. You know, she was thrilled that I knew her work, that here's this young guy who's in film school and she knows about her work. She knows about her work with Griffith, her later work. And she was very encouraging to me. And at that time, I had a professor named William K. Everson, who was the world's foremost film historian. And I was studying filmmaking, little realizing that my kind of hobby and passion for film history would eventually kind of take over. Also, after Professor Everson, I became acquainted with Kevin Brownlow, who kind of took on the mantle of world's greatest film historian. He's the only man awarded with an Academy Award for his work in film history. And he's been very encouraging as well. So I've had a couple of really great mentors to kind of make sure I, I do a good job in what I do. So then you decide you're going to go and study even more, and you become an instructor in film history, and you were at Chapman University in Southern California for several years, and you wrote the first book that I talked about, Colonel William N. Selig. And I may have you come back on to talk about that book, but your current book sure. is intriguing because it's 
It's Vitagraph, America's first great motion picture studio, and again, published yes. by University Press of Kentucky. How did you decide to go and cover a studio? Most people have a certain sense of Hollywood and Hollywood history, and you debunked that in your book. How did you decide to go into the world of Vitagraph, and how did you know there'd be these secrets here that nobody seemed to know? If not <laughs> secrets, at least just knowledge that nobody seemed to know. Yeah. You know, that actually started with my work on Colonel Selig, because Selig is someone no one's ever heard of. I think I even called him Selig, but it's Selig. Everyone does. Yes, right. it's, it's Selig. As I was doing my research on Colonel Selig, I kept running up against Vitagraph. I had heard of Vitagraph. If you lived in New York or if you're a really weird film history geek, you've probably heard the name, but... You don't know much more than that. Or you get it confused with Biograph. Exactly. Biograph or Vitaphone or millions of other things that I, I still get, you know, promoting the book and everything. But you run up against Vitagraph when you're studying the early days of motion pictures in America, and they were by far the biggest studio and were the leaders in how America made films, where America distributed films, on and on and on. They kind of not only defined the look, defined the content, along with Selig, but uh, also really set the tone for the world embracing American movies. You know, early on, George Millier, his films were by far the most popular films at the end of the 1890s and early 1900s. The French company Pathé was a leader in the business of filmmaking, and they got their films out everywhere. But as soon as Vitagraph, to a large extent, embraced the path they business model, audiences everywhere around the world embraced the American films that Vitagraph was putting out. And it's been that way in an awful lot of the world ever since. You say in your book, too, and that Vitagraph really was responsible for creating what we attribute to other studios in the sense of the studio system. Everybody sure. thinks that MGM or other studios in Hollywood set that up. But in yeah. fact, Vitagraph way, way back had, oh, yeah. had actors and actresses and carpenters and set designers and studio lots etc. And I want to talk about how the name studio came into use as well. But just some of the stuff you cover in your book is fascinating. And so Vitagraph, and in your book, by the way, there's also pictures that you don't normally see. And there's pictures of people such as, just to show you the, the, the odd combination of things you would see in your book, Mo Howard is in there from the Three Stooges, mm -hmm. and as well as a very young Louis B. Mayer. So everybody thinks of Louis B. Mayer strictly from the MGM era, but in fact, he goes back further to the Nickelodeon era, and Absolutely. he was an exhibitor, and he was involved with Vitagraph in a not necessarily friendly way, but that's the part of history that, why is it that people don't know that? Why is it that we all accept what we think we know, and then it takes an author like you to bring this material out? How did it get obscured? Was it deliberate or just the way it, the way it is? Well, it was it was mostly deliberate and kind of bad timing. The first widely distributed film books were written, film history books, were written after the demise of Vitagraph. 
So the people that took over, the second generation of filmmakers that took over from the original pioneers, like any conquering army, kind of take credit for everything. And they deserve an awful lot of credit for a lot of the things they did, but they don't deserve all the credit. And Adolf Zucker was especially a stickler for wanting credit for everything. It was Thomas Edison in the beginning. I invented movies. I did this. I did that. And then it's Adolf Zucker. And these guys have monumental egos. And, you know, most people, most people, in I don't care what the business is. It's live and let live. I've got my competitors. So be it. You know, I'm going to do the best job I can. But there are a handful of people out there that are like, I don't want competition. I want the whole enchilada. And that pretty much defines Edison and Zucker. And Edison takes credit in the very earliest film history books written when he was still alive. Everyone had to defer to him and create these myths. When he passed away around 1930, the first, I mean, big books that were widely distributed around the world were written and they had to defer to Zucker. Zucker was the king and they wanted the people writing the books wanted access to Zucker. You couldn't really tell the story of 1920s movies without dealing with him and they all started to defer to him. And this is a horrible thing to say and maybe someday someone will say it about me too and I'll probably deserve it. For having said this, but film historians have historically been so lazy because we've taken everyone's word at things. Oh, well, if so-and-so said this, then it must be true. Yeah, or if it's printed in some book somewhere, it must be true because right, right. the guy that wrote it seems to be a well-respected guy. So, yeah, right. why not? You know, the very first film history book that's still underwent many printings over the years, was written around 1924-25. And when I came across that book, I thought, well, this is the earliest book, so it must be true. And the guy that wrote it was a publicity guy. so Oh, then it must be it. true, of course. <laughs> it must be true. How did you, when you finally decided to focus on Vitagraph, I'm just always curious about process. How did you start down that rabbit hole and discover these gems? And we can talk about some of these gems that you bring up in your book. It was a, it's a great read. It's not an overly academic book. It's for everybody to read who's interested in, in the history of film. But how did you start that process? In other words, where did you decide to go? What libraries did you use? Were there people still, not still alive, but maybe their grandkids or the great-grandkids of some of the pioneers? How did you start your journey? Great question. It was easy when I did the Selig book because Selig left his papers to the Motion Picture Academy, and they were all there and no one had ever bothered to look at them. So I spent a couple of years every day at the Motion Picture Academy going through all the Selig papers. So my first, as I thought about Vitagraph, and there was no comprehensive book about Vitagraph, I naturally turned to the folks at the Motion Picture Academy and said, do you have anything that belonged to any of the Vitagraph people or the papers or whatever? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there are. So I started there. And then I discovered that one of the two founders of Vitagraph left his papers to the UCLA library. And then, you know, kind of spoiler alert, Vitagraph was ultimately purchased by Warner Brothers. 
And the Warner Brothers business documents are at USC in their library. And when Warner Brothers purchased Vitagraph, they purchased everything lock, stock, and barrel, including, you know, hundreds of filing cabinets of documents. So there are original Vitagraph documents that predate Warner Brothers by decades that are accessible at USC as well. And then you get into some of the other people, like Edison. His papers are at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and he had extensive early dealings with Vitagraph, not always, you know, nice dealings with Vitagraph, but to get that perspective on things. So there were a lot of great resources there. And as I would look into some documents or um, look at films in archives, archivists working in these places would say, no one's ever requested looking into these papers. Or the last time we have on record of someone looking at this film was 1966. Or no one's ever asked to look at this film. We, we don't even know if it'll run through a projector. We need to, you know, do some tests first. Were they delighted when you requested some of these records that nobody had requested before or not for a yes. long time? Because librarians, yes. especially research librarians, love it when someone's interested in what they have. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, for any aspiring film historians out there, they're bored to tears by, you know, how many more people can write about Casablanca or Gone with the Wind or whatever. It's like on and on and on. We've, we've covered that. There's nothing left. So. It is a fascinating story. The two founders of Vitagraph, Albert Smith and J. Stewart Blackton, two different types of individuals, one seem to have a contradictory situation based on what I read in your book. And correct me if I'm wrong. On the one hand, you indicated he was somewhat of a humanist, if that's the term, or at least he had certain ethics. And at the same time, he was somewhat anti-Semitic. He was. He was an anti... J. Stuart Blackton, by his daughter's admission, was an anti-Semite. He was also prejudiced against black people and Italians. I've at least... I have, you know... Uh, authentic documentation of those prejudices. He's not the partner that I like the most, and in large part because of that. Smith is a nicer, he's easier to like, let's put it that way. But Blackton was uh, an amazing creative person who did a lot, you know, for movie history. And it's fascinating, too, that both of those guys having different personalities were able to put together what became not just film distribution, not just filmmaking, but an entire studio, if not more than one studio, because they moved west yeah. into Santa Monica. But the interesting part was that, I, and I think it was Albert Smith's wife, correct me if I'm wrong, could be Blackton. It was Blackton, Blackton's wife. Okay, then it was Blackton, thank you. It was Blackton's wife, both of them were social climbers. And she, though, and this is the fascinating thing, again, there's so many of these nuggets that's worth reading just for the nuggets, let alone the whole scope of history of Vitagraph. But she was the one that came up with the name for what was the lot or the factory, and it was called the studio, because yeah. she felt that sounded right, because both of them had been in France, and it just sounded that that's what we should call that. And all of a sudden, everybody, of course, now thinks of... It's automatic. Uh, it's automatic. Yeah, it's the yeah. studio. Yeah. So that was fascinating. The Blackton's honeymoon in France 
And it was as much to embrace as much French culture as they could. You know, husband and wife came from nothing. So were they pretentious then? Terribly. <laughs> you know, when, when Blackton was started making the really big money, he decided he had to have an estate on Long Island. And the estate that he chose, his neighbor to one side was Theodore Roosevelt. His neighbor on the other side was Tiffany. So it's like, I have arrived. Oh, absolutely. He, he became a yachtsman. <laughs> he became the head of the... Not a lawnsman, but a yachtsman. A yachtsman. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he became the, the head of the, I think it was the Atlantic Yacht Club, the most the, prestigious yacht. He, be, he became Commodore, right? And it, he became Commodore. So he became Commodore because he and his wife donated whatever it took to become Commodore. Oh, we'll, we'll donate to this and that and the other thing. He's giving us all the money. He needs to be our leader. So he was the leader of that uh, yacht club for maybe five years, but he retained the title of Commodore. He insisted on it for the rest of his life, and even members of his own family were instructed to address him as Commodore. <laughs> <laughs> the only two guys that didn't were his partners at Vitagraph. <laughs> I know we're jumping around, but that's the idea. I want to give people a flavor yeah. of what's in the book. So we're not going sequentially at all. There's another character within the book. When I say within the book, it sounds like a character of fiction, but really nonfiction. Still, he was a character. Yes. And he became part of the Vitagraph family. Can you give us a little yeah. sense of what his contribution was? Uh, William T. Rock was, like, like Blackton and Smith, was an immigrant from England. And came over as a kid, just like these guys. But he was about 20 years older. He was a generation older than these guys. And Blackman and Smith were babes in the woods when it came to business. They had been vaudeville entertainers and kind of low-end vaudeville entertainers when they discovered movies at the very beginning of movies. And they were getting hassled, persecuted by Thomas Edison and his attorneys. And Edison was running people out of the business Either you give me the bulk of your profits or you're gone. And Rock, they became acquainted with this guy, Rock. And Rock saw these guys initially as easy marks. You know, I can glom onto this and make an awful lot of money. These guys don't know what they're doing. But he also had money, which was something they didn't have. And he had influence. He knew a lot of people. He knew a lot of the right people. So they took him on as a partner, and it was a smart move. He, he was not nearly as hands-on in the creative end, really not at all. But he did help to establish clients for Vitagraph movies, which was so crucial in the first dozen years of, of the company because there weren't movie theaters. What do you do? Here's, here are these things. How do you get them out to people? And Rock was so creative about where you get movies. You know, the very first idea, and he wasn't the one that came up with it, was you go to vaudeville theaters. So one of the acts on a vaudeville bill would be movies. Okay, that's good. He's a very charming man. He gets an awful lot of vaudeville theaters to take on a steady basis photograph films. The, the one that I love is Rock was in touch with a place called the Kickapoo Medicine Show. <laughs> and there were medicine shows at the turn of the century 
that went out across America and in small towns and rural areas, people were looking at Vitagraph movies for the first time. These snake oil salesmen would show a movie and then, you know, extol the virtues of, of these horrible patent medicines that were, you know, 90, 92% alcohol that were guaranteed to cure everything under the sun. But it's, it, to my way of thinking, it was, it was almost the predecessor of TV and commercial television. You know, you've got to sell the product. You show them a little film, you break for a little product. And I think, though, in a lot of theaters in New York, didn't they, according to your book, they also used movies to chase people out for the next vaudeville act, or the next yeah. vaudeville audience, I should say. Right, for the next audience. Yeah. That was in the early days when seeing movement for the sake of movement was enough. So if you saw a juggler, wow, there's movement. You know, if you saw a tightrope walker, there's movement. But after a while, audiences were getting bored with that. And ultimately, the Vitagraph guys were among the first in America to figure this out. People would sit still for stories, and they started to crave story-based movies. And they really jumped on that, and, and soon everyone kind of followed suit and started making story-based films, and then you start to get dedicated theaters, which we know as Nickelodeons, uh, to show strictly movies and only movies. And that was, you know, that was it. There were so many firsts in your book that are attributed to Vitagraph, including stop-motion photography, etc. Yeah, it's say, just fascinating, say, all these things we take for granted today. Yeah, yeah. Certainly stop-motion photography and animation. J. Stuart Blackton single-handedly invented motion picture animation, which is amazing. If you've ever seen the movie, um, if you're a hardcore old-time movie geek, you might have seen Gertie the Dinosaur by Winsor McKay. And Winsor McKay had one of the uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland. And he was acquainted with Blackton. He wanted to try something with motion picture animation. And, you know, they opened up Vitagraph facilities to Windsor McKay. And a lot of people, to a lot of people, well, Windsor McKay with Gertie the Dinosaur and his later films are misattributed as the beginning of animation. I may have misread it, but I thought I read that Kyle Bellin had, was the first time for a close-up in terms Ballou. of... It, or Kyle Ballou, I'm well, sorry, right. He, he was the first close-up in a Vitagraph movie. Um, oh, okay, within, the, within that yeah. system, but there were close-ups in right. the wider the world. Okay. Yeah, I, I I, there, there were probably, I would defer that, that there were probably close-ups before Vitagraph did theirs. I, I can't say with any definitive authority. There's a couple of other names within the book you talk about, and again, it's a fascinating read, Stan Laurel before Laurel and Hardy. There's a name that popped up that I didn't see a connection to later on in his career, but I saw the name and I said, oh, it has to be the same guy, and that was William Paley. You oh, William it's, Paley. A diff it's a different William Paley. Oh, thank you. Okay, that's why. It is. It is. Okay, then we'll let it go yeah, at that. <laughs> I, believe me, I, I was confused too by that initially. <laughs> <laughs> when you were doing yeah. the research, and I just have this picture in my mind of you going to the library every day, as you indicated, for a long time, and I'm sure the reference librarians see you day after day, so yeah. they get so used to you, and they're looking forward to you coming in, because you may be the one person in the whole day that's there for the whole day, as opposed yeah. to somebody walking in and just asking for 
some minor little thing and then leaving. So mm -hmm. I assume there's a friendship in a way formed with the reference librarians in these various libraries around the country. There is, absolutely. And especially at the Motion Picture Academy Library. I've made a lot of great friendships there. And the first time you walk into these places, if you've ever seen Citizen Kane and you see the moment where the guy who's sent to the newspaper reporter is sent to investigate the life of Crane and he goes to the Thatcher Library and it's quiet and someone's staring at him and there's a statue of Thatcher looking down at him and he starts to pour through these documents. It's intimidating. And that was certainly my earliest experience in these places. But once they get to know you, you get to know them. It's great. And then they'll bend over backwards and, and you know, you'll say, you know, I, they mentioned so-and-so here. Would so-and-so have any papers? And, well, I, I don't know if we have it categorized under them, but let me see if I can find something. And they'll go the extra mile for you. Yeah, that really is helpful to an author, no I doubt about it. I can't thank them enough, yeah. And you do in the book, which is great. This will probably be the best question, of course, and it's always the typical question, so I'll just get it out there. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered about Vitagraph and its history while you were writing the book? That's a great question, Ira. I, it's a little embarrassing to admit this, but since you asked... I'll yeah, come this. on, you could do it. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, I've, lived in, I've lived in New York for most of my adult life and for a chunk of my childhood, and I moved to Los Angeles in 1995. I lived in a neighborhood called Los Feliz, I lived in a house I shared with an old buddy from film school at NYU. There was uh, the ABC television studios. On Prospect. With, on Prospect. We're in the backyard. And I knew that it had been the site of an old film studio, but I didn't know which one. And I didn't learn which one it was until I did the research and found out this was the Vitagraph studio. They initially opened up a studio in Santa Monica to make westerns. And it makes sense only when you think of the Santa Monica Mountains are perfect topography for westerns. But they ended up moving inland around 1914, 1915 to Hollywood because there's a horrible fog that comes in to Santa Monica an awful lot. So they opened up the Hollywood studio, and it was huge. And I love that their phone number when they opened up the studio was Hollywood 2. So you dial HO2, and you get Vitagraph. That's how early they were in Hollywood. So you discovered the studio in your backyard. And it was the studio in my backyard. Great way to leave it. I love it. My guest has been Andrew A. Arish. He's the author of Vitagraph, America's First Great Motion Picture Studio, published by University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. Andrew, thanks for being on the show. Ira, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.